Half a world away from their hometowns, the conquistadors were on edge. Just a few days ago, the big boss man himself, Miguel Lopez del Gaspi, had issued a stern order. All Spaniards had to declare every bit of gold they had looted from the native graveyards of Cebu. It was for accounting purposes, you see. The crown had the right to take a fifth of all the plunder and they couldn't properly shave off that commission unless every ounce of gold was listed in the record books. The fact that Miguel Lopez de Legazpi had to order his men to come clean meant that the looting was well and truly out of control. The natives would not have been happy that the graves of Lolo and Lola had been dug up, the bracelets yanked out from their ulnas, the caps prized out of their teeth. Tension hung thick in the humid summer wind. The Spanish didn't dare step foot out of their camp. Anyone caught breaking curfew would be punished severely. One reckless soul, however, disobeyed orders. He was none other than Pedro de Arana, the gentleman page of Legazpi. No one seems to know why the conquistador's personal assistant would so brazenly break the rules. But break the rules he did to take a walk along the seashore alone except for a firearm at his side. His arquebus proved useless when a band of warriors ambushed him from a palm grove. They ran him through with a spear, then cut off his head. Leaving the corpse on the beach, the warriors took Arana's head with them as they made their escape on a boat. The incident of Pedro de Arana happened on May 23, 1565, and it is likely the first instance of decapitation in the Philippine Islands recorded in the Spanish archives. It was followed by attacks and reprisals as Legazpi launched a manhunt for Arana's murderers. But it would not be the last time that invaders would lose their heads, both literally and figuratively, as they came face to face with that ancient Filipino tradition that we now call headhunting. Welcome to the Colonial Department. This is the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. Just a little heads up, in this episode, we will examine the many encounters between colonizers and headhunters during the early days of the Spanish occupation. This is Season 5, Episode 10, Off With Their Heads. Coming down from their galleons, the colonizers, soldiers, missionaries, bureaucrats alike, immediately encountered a world that was no stranger to ritual violence. These Christians, whose own god was nailed to a cross, could only recoil with consternation and horror. Heinous, many called it. Cruel. Brutish. Seen from their eyes, these practices were senseless, primitive, barbaric, and even diabolic. From the native perspective, however, these were meaningful, virtuous, and just acts. In fact, these were often celebrated with feasting, jubilation, relief, and thanksgiving. That was a quote from historian Narciso Tan, who wrote a National Book Award-winning volume on Philippine headhunters, ritual sacrifices, and cannibalism. He goes on to say that these practices, especially the ritual of cutting off someone else's head, were a vital, pulsating foundation of her ancestors' emotional, spiritual, and moral lives. There was great power in the human body, but like an atom, 
potentially even greater power when it's split apart. This is what our forebears believed. Part someone from their head and famine could be averted. Sicknesses could be cured. Spirits could be appeased. The recently dead could find solace. A shaken world might find balance and harmony. Our ancestral memory of headhunting is long, its beginnings lost in mythic time. Listen to two tales, both from the peoples of northern Luzon, that supposedly tell the story of the first headhunt. In the beginning of time, the creator of man, Talanganay, built his homestead inside a giant boulder by the banks of the river Buntuk. From the mud of the riverbank, he fashioned three people. But despite his best efforts, one of the people he had made would accept neither breath nor soul. So Talanganay sacrificed this third person by cutting off their body parts. He planted the dismembered legs, and they became banana trees. He planted the dismembered arms, and they became sugarcane and beetle palms. He planted the hands and feet, and they became yams and sweet potatoes. And what of the head? Well, Talanganay took it and planted it on the ground, and from that spot grew the first coconut tree. That is an ancient story from the Kalinga people. Here's another myth, this time from the Ifugao. After a devastating deluge brought by an angry river god, the last two people left on earth were a brother and sister, who became the parents of five sons and four daughters. The elder sons ended up marrying their sisters, but the youngest one, Igon, had no wife. When sickness and famine came, the four older brothers decided to sacrifice the lonely Igon. The gods were pleased, and the granaries were again filled with rice. But they had brought murder into the world, and to appease their brother's spirit, their father commanded them to take the head of Igon and put it on a pole, and dance around it until his spirit was comforted. Then they boiled his head until all that was left was bone, and they hung Igon's skull on the side of their house as a reminder that they had killed their brother. As they grew older, the brothers' feelings grew even darker and more murderous, and they wanted to take each other's heads. So their father ordered the four brothers and the four sisters to separate and to go to separate corners of the earth, and to raise their families there until the human race would be as numerous as it was before the Great Flood. And always, in times good or bad, they would remember the skull of Igon, the brother they had murdered. As you can see from the stories, headhunting was intimately connected to fertility and the spirit world. In the Kalinga myth, the bud of the coconut tree sprouted from the split skull, recently parted from its neck. In the Ifugao story, the beheading of Igon pleased the gods, and the crops grew again, and the family became prosperous. But take note, Igon's spirit himself had to be pacified, and his brothers had to celebrate his beheading by dancing around his skull. Across the Philippines, however, the primary reason for beheading was to furnish companions for the newly dead, an abai, as the Tagalogs and Visayans called them. A successful headhunt could also placate a wrathful anito. Headhunting also went hand-in-hand -hand with wars and quarrels and blood feuds. Headhunting was even tied to marriage because in many cultures in Luzon, 
warriors had to successfully lop off a head before the village women would even look at them. So as you can see, the motivations for headhunting were both worldly and supernatural. Though of course, we have to remember that in an animistic worldview, this distinction would not have made any sense. To our ancestors, the real world and the spirit world were intertwined and inseparable. After a successful headhunt, a warrior may also experience an emotional catharsis. A Bugalot tribesman, for example, would feel like a heavy stone had been cast off from their hearts when they toss away a head they had just cut off. The release of intense feelings would culminate in a night of feasting and dancing and sacrifice. In some cultures, the revelers would drink from the skull of their victim. The victims, on the other hand, would certainly not have been feeling the same emotional high as their captors. Men, women, adults, children, young, old, all were targets of headhunting raids. If they were captured for sacrificial feasts, the victim was surrounded and hacked and stabbed multiple times. But they could also be crushed to death, strangled, thrown off a cliff, or drowned. When it was time to separate the head, the headtakers used sharp bolos, balaraus, or other similar blades. The Zambals, however, were particularly known for using strange, leaf-shaped blades called igua. You can find a depiction of this fearsome weapon in the Boxer Codex, where a Zambal warrior is using it to cut open an ox. In 1570, as the Spanish advanced beyond Manila and into Batangas, they were greeted by the sight of heads mounted atop stakes or hung across doorways. It became clear that even in Luzon, the taking of heads was widely practiced, and the conquistadors were quick to chalk it up to an inhuman and cruel way of life. One missionary in Zambales was even convinced that an attempted beheading was the work of demonic possession. As the Spanish banner penetrated farther and farther into the Luzon interior, the headhunting blades were turned against its soldiers and its subjects. Shortly after his conquest of Manila, Miguel Lopez de Legazpi sent an expedition down south to Bicol to find gold mines. But what had happened to his manservant in Cebu happened again to his prospectors. When they left the safety of their camps or got lost along the way, they would be ambushed by headhunters. Their encomenderos, too, would be attacked on the roadside, great gouts of blood gushing from their necks as the raiders left their twitching bodies behind. Legazpi would later admit defeat, telling the viceroy of New Spain that it would be impossible to profitably dig up gold with the threat of headhunters stalking the mines. Perhaps the Spanish weren't the only invaders to lose their heads to native warriors. A few years after the Bicol incident, a Chinese warlord named Lin Feng, or as the Spanish called him, Lima Hong, knocked greedily on Manila's door, an enormous fleet of 62 ships and 2,000 soldiers trailing behind him. But the Spanish repulsed the attack, especially after Juan de Salcedo returned to Manila's defense, turning away from his northern quest of looting gold from the natives to charge into the capital like the Rohirrim and reinforce the troops. Limahong's defeated armada retreated to the Pangasinan coast. It was there that some of these pirates met a mysterious end. 
a Spanish maestro de campo in pursuit would later report seeing more than 80 Chinese bodies strewn on the beach, all of them missing their heads. He assumed that India warriors had taken them. After his heroic defense of Manila, Juan de Salcedo returned to the north to resume his campaign of pillage. In 1576, at just 27 years of age, the conquistador died, supposedly of dysentery. He was laid to rest in Ilocos, but after a year, his remains were dug up and sent back to Manila, where he would be buried beside his grandfather, Miguel Lopez de Legazpi. The skeleton, however, was missing its skull. Had the conquistador been beheaded after death, the Ilocanos disinterring his corpse to make off with his skull? Had they done it out of veneration or scorn? No one ever found out. And so the Spanish laid the conquistador in his tomb in San Agustin Church, a blank space where his head should be. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Colonial Department. Find us on Instagram and TikTok for more history, behind-the-scenes, and non-fiction book recommendations. This episode was all about heads, but if you want to know more about how the Spanish imagined that some of the Philippine natives possessed tails, listen to Season 2, Episode 2, Homo Caudatus. Leo Mangubat wrote, narrated, and produced this episode. Anya Ong Reyes read the creation stories and quotations from sources. References include 1. Narciso Tan's National Book Award-winning compendium entitled Pugot, Head-Taking, Ritual Cannibalism, and Human Sacrifice in the Philippines. 2. Jules de Wright's article on the creation myth of Talanganay, published in the Journal of Philippine Culture and Society. 3. Ramon Maria Zaragoza's chapter on Juan de Salcedo, published in the journal Budhik. 